Good evening, friends. Clifford Baptist Church, it is good to have you here tonight on this Wednesday night as we continue on in a study. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're glad you are here. Remain with me as we continue in a study that carries us through the entirety of the Bible. But as we begin tonight, I want to say thank you for being with me. God bless you as you join us for this Bible study. Uh, and I would like for us to begin with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, I thank you, Father, that we have the freedom to open your word. Lord, thank you for your word that is a love story from the beginning to the end. And Father, this love story is tied together. It is not simply a collection of different stories, but rather, Lord, there is one thread that runs through all of the stories, all the biblical accounts of lives, and all of the words of the Bible, Lord, are tied together by your thread of love that runs through this book, Father, to show us how you love us, how you forgive us, how you receive us, and how you sent us a Savior that we might have eternal life. And so, Father, thank you that I have those who are with me tonight who are eager students of your word. I pray, Father, that you will bless us. Lord, on a regular Wednesday night, we lift up many prayer concerns before you. And, Father, tonight I pray that as we lift up our needs, our concerns, the people we love for healing and for blessing, Father, for those joys that we bring before you. Father, thank you that you're the God of joy and you're the God who walks with us as the good shepherd when we have needs in our lives. Lord, so we bring you our prayer concerns tonight as we would do on a regular Wednesday night. But I thank you, Father, that tonight we center our attention on your word. And again, Father, I am so blessed to have brothers and sisters with me who open the word with me that you might teach us, Lord. I'm a student as everyone else is a student here, Father. And so I pray that you will use my tongue and that you will use my mind to convey the truths of your word, Lord. But as I teach, I pray that the teacher of the Holy Spirit will teach me, uh, use me. Bless me, Father, in these moments. And, I, Father, I pray that you will bless each one who holds a Bible in their lap tonight, who is an eager student of your word, Lord, as we open it together. Bless us, we pray. Speak to us. Teach us your truth, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are joining us for the very first time tonight, we are taking a journey through the Bible. It's called The Thread That Runs Through the Bible. Uh, we have been through nine lessons, and all of those lessons have been in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Basically, the book of Genesis is the story of two creations of God. First of all, in the early chapters of Genesis, we learn about God's creation of the heavens and the earth and everything there is, and the pinnacle of His creation, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, who begin the human race. Uh, early, we find out that uh, as he blesses his creation, that it does fall into sin and falls in rebellion and away from him. Not only does Adam and Eve fall into sin, but all of creation falls because of their sin. And they are the first two human beings, but all of us live in that same pattern of sin that Adam and Eve did. But God created the heavens and the earth. He continues to be the God of, over his creation. But then also there's a second creation story in the book of Genesis. God created a family. That family is known as Israel, the people of Israel, the people who are Jewish. Uh, and we know that as we see the creation of that family, uh, there are four patriarchs whose lives are covered in the book of Genesis. The patriarch of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob 
and then his son Joseph. Four patriarchs, four generations of the foundation of the family of Israel. And so we've studied through the book of Genesis in nine lessons. The entirety of our lessons are going to be somewhere between 30 and 32 lessons, so almost a third, a quarter of our study has been in the book of Genesis, but there's a reason for that. We have to have a firm foundation in the beginnings of the Bible to understand the progress of God's love and God's plan played out through the Bible. So tonight, we're beginning the book of Exodus. If you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. Turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Exodus. In Lesson 10, we are going to begin our study of a section called The Exodus and the Promised Land. Uh, That's going to take us through several lessons as we progress on with the thread that runs through the Bible. Tonight is the call of Moses and the establishment of the Passover in lesson number 10. Now, last week, we studied the life of Joseph, which closes the book of Genesis. In order to to get us all on the same page and to, to, to get a good understanding of where this study is headed, let me give you a little recap of last week's lesson so all of us can have a good starting point. Very briefly... Joseph lived an amazing life. He was the favorite son of his father, Jacob, who was renamed by God Israel. Uh, However, Joseph, being the favored son out of the brothers, was hated by his brothers. He was despised by his brothers. Because of that, they considered killing him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, said, no, we cannot do that. And so the plan came to a plan B, and that they would sell him to Ishmaelite travelers who were coming through, who would transport him to Egypt, sell him into slavery. He would disappear into the ranks of slaves in Egypt, and the brothers would never hear from him again. The father would never hear from him again. If you remember, the brothers lied, saying that they took his coat, And they dipped it in goat's blood and said, Dad, here's his coat with blood on it. And wild animals killed Joseph. And so they thought that Joseph was gone forever. His father Jacob thought he had been killed. But while he was in Egypt as a slave, a series of of God-led events uh, uh, transports Joseph's life from slavery into being the vice president of Egypt. It's an interesting story. And he spearheads a program of storing grain to save the land from a severe famine that's going to come seven years down the road. He would have to store grain to hold uh, Egypt in food for seven years of famine. He does that. The program is so successful that not only does he store enough grain for Egypt, but he stores enough that he might sell it to other countries surrounding Egypt. And his own brothers come out of Canaan to buy grain from Egypt. And they deal with this Egyptian leader. They did not recognize him. He was well-groomed. He was clean-shaven as an Egyptian was. And unknowingly, the brothers were talking to their brother, Joseph. They had sold him into slavery years ago, thought he was gone forever, and yet here they are talking to him. They did not recognize Joseph, but he indeed recognized his brothers. As the story unfolds, and I won't go through the entire story, but the family comes to know one another, and Joseph invites the entire family from his father and his mother on through, uh, on through the family. He invites the family to come to live in Egypt with him as a privileged people. They come to live in Egypt under the rulership of the vice president, but also Pharaoh, the king of 
Egypt had invited them as well. So the Israelite family, Joseph's family, came living in privilege in Egypt for years. At the end of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 24 through 26, Joseph dies. But just before his death, his final request is, as God will visit Israel in Egypt, he says, don't bury my bones here, but rather carry my bones out of Egypt when you leave and take me back to Canaan land, the land that was promised to my uh, great-grandfather, grandfather, and father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he is embalmed, and he is kept aside to leave Egypt one day. But at the end of Genesis, the Israelites are living in Egypt, and they are a privileged people. And the family, under privilege, grows to over 2 million people. Now, that's a necessary background for the study tonight. As we open the book of Exodus, Israel is still living in Egypt under privilege. Uh, as, a, as a royal people, connected to the royalty, guiding Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. So, the family of Joseph, the family of Israel living in wonderful circumstances, continued to grow and to expand into the land. It was all good. In fact, they lived that way for four centuries, 400 years. They lived in the privilege of Egypt. But then a major shift takes place. This is very important as a turning point in God's history of the nation of Israel. So don't miss this point. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. So a new king comes to the throne and doesn't know why all of these Israelite people are in his land. He didn't know about the legacy of Joseph, and he didn't know exactly why the Israelites were there. He simply knew that they were growing to be a powerful people. Now, before we move on, let me give you a little history lesson. Uh, So take notes on this if you're taking notes. In Joseph's time as vice president of Egypt, it was governed by a people called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, the Hyksos people. They were descendants of Noah's son, Shem, who conquered and controlled Egypt in the 18th century before Christ. So they had been ruling Egypt The Hyksos people had been rulers of Egypt for a long, long time. And then in the 1500s B.C., the native Egyptians rose up and threw the Hyksos government out. And there was a new ruler who came to the throne. Probably his name was Ramses II, and he reigned in Egypt for 67 years. So this new ruler... Probably his name is Ramses. This new ruler of the native people of Egypt who had taken the throne now looks at all of these Israelites, over two million of them living in his country. And this new ruler takes note saying, if these Israelites choose to do so, they could easily rise up 
and take over this land. There is so many of them that if they decide to join their forces together to take over the land of Egypt, they could easily expel me out of this rulership and take over themselves. And so this new ruler makes a decision that he is going to subdue them and take them out of their role of royalty and make them slaves. He was going to demean them out of their royal position into a position of slavery so that he would channel all of that energy of the Israelite people into service of the people of Egypt. And that way, making them slaves, Egypt and the leadership of Egypt could control the Israelite people. But the plan doesn't quite work. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. But the more the Egyptians, the more the Egyptians, they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So Israel continued to grow even under affliction. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. In other words, the Israelites had to work hard, long hours out of every day. They were slaves. They were servants to the nation of Egypt. Amazingly, they had been moved out of their position of being raised up into a position of lowly slavery. That is an interesting statement. I want you to listen to this. In their utter freedom... They were moved to hard labor. And probably the Israelites didn't know that that shift was going to come in their lives. But they were moved from one position to another position. I think that's very prophetic. And I think that prophecy speaks to the church as well. Uh, In our culture, in our freedom in America, the true church needs to continue to be wary about how we stand in our culture. Our culture is going to bring about some things that might make the church step back and compromise and not be the church that the Lord Jesus calls us to be. We need to be wary and always standing on this Word of God and wary about the changes that might be coming in our culture and never be subdued into the fact that we're going to step back and compromise and acquiesce to our culture. But we need to continue to stand strong in serving and representing and witnessing for Jesus Christ every day that we Uh, are given that opportunity. Now, when the Israelites continued to grow, as the nation grew, even in slavery, old Pharaoh developed a new plan, a plan B. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children, alive. It's interesting that The Egyptian pharaoh tells these Hebrew midwives, when you are there with a woman giving birth to a child, 
You are to kill every male child of the Hebrew nation that is born. And the midwives absolutely did not regard his word. He, they allowed all of the boy children to live. And here's the excuse they gave. I love this excuse that they give for why they did not kill the male children. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 19. And the, and the midwife said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Well, I, kinda, I love what that statement says. Basically, the midwife said, You know, these Hebrew women are not sissy women like the Egyptians. These Hebrew women, when they're ready to give birth, they give birth to their child, and that child is born and gone before we ever get there. You Egyptians take your time and whimper through birth. These Hebrew women, they get it done and take that male child, and they are gone. We never see them, and so those children are living. We don't have a chance to take their lives. And it says that God favors them. Even though they did not tell the truth in this particular instance, God favored them because they were sparing the lives of these children. We continue to need to spare the lives of our children in our culture today. So, Pharaoh gives his nation a law. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying... Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So he's speaking to his Egyptian people about the Hebrew people, and he says, For every Hebrew male child that you find alive, you are to take that child and cast him in the river so that he drowns. So that was the order, that was the law that Pharaoh gave to his Egyptian people, that they were to kill all the male Hebrew children by casting them in the river. And here we see the entrance of a monumental figure in the Bible, one of the most important human beings who ever walked the face of the earth as a man of God. His name is Moses. And we're going to pick up the life of Moses, how important his life is. Of course, he is the one who is called of God. He is the one who will bring uh, the Hebrew nation out of Egypt in an exodus. We'll get to that. But we're going to look at the entrance of Moses in the world. Probably, if you've been in Sunday school all your life, you know this story well. But let's read it together. Look with me to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The introduction of this monumental man of God in the word of God. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took a wife of a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child herein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This 
is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Well, from verse 1, Moses' mother and father were both Levites of the holy tribe of Israel, the tribe of Leah's son, Levi. This was the priestly tribe of the Israelite nation. So the Levite woman, Jochebed, has a son, and she hides him for three months. But at the age of three months and beyond, he got too old and too loud to hide. When he was crying, it wasn't that little subdued cry of a newborn, but it got louder and louder, and she could no longer hide this little boy. But she knew that if he were found, that he would surely be killed, thrown into the river, his life taken away. And the whole family would be punished because they had kept him for so long. Well, you know the story. She takes a, bag, a basket. She coats it in tar and pitch and slime. And although the King James Version says the flags, many versions say the bulrushes. She put that, that baby in the river's bank in the bulrushes, floats him in the Nile River, and his little sister hides in the weeds to watch what will happen to this little boy who is in that little ark at the side of the Nile River. And according to Exodus chapter 2, verse 5, the very daughter of Pharaoh himself comes to the river to bathe, and she finds that little boy in that little basket floating in the river. And it is interesting to me, there comes a moment where Pharaoh's daughter has to make a decision. She finds that little baby in the basket. As soon as she opens that basket, that baby starts to cry. And her heart of compassion goes out to him. And all of a sudden, this little girl rushes up and says, Would you like me to find a nurse for this little boy? And at that moment, Pharaoh's daughter had to make a decision. Do I cast him in the river this very moment? Or do I preserve his life? And very interestingly... And by the instinct of a woman and a mother, she defies her very father's law to kill him. And she spares this little boy's life. She pulls him out of the river so that he would live. Rather than throw him in the river, she pulls him out of the river. That's an interesting dichotomy of what is happening here. When daddy says, throw him in the river, God says, pull him out of the river. And just to show how smart God is... This little sister comes to Pharaoh's daughter and volunteers to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby. And who does she find? The baby's own mother. So Jochebed gets her son back that she might nurse him, that she might raise him. As the Pharaoh's daughter says, go and get her. And Moses goes right back to his mama. And not only that, but according to Exodus chapter 2 verse 9... It's amazing to me, it's wonderful to me that it says that the daughter of Pharaoh 
pays her to nurse him. <laughs> so God worked it out that not only did, did Moses go back to his biological mother, but she gets paid to raise him. God is so smart. And I just see God's humor and God's grace in this. He is a genius. Gets, gets Moses back to his own mama and gets a paycheck for doing it. Okay, so this is the second time a Hebrew enters a ruling family in the Egyptians. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, had entered the, he, the uh, Egyptian family as a Hebrew and became a great ruler in the nation. And here we see Moses entering the Hebrew nation as a member of the royal family, pulled out of the water by Pharaoh's own daughter. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's home. Moses learns the Egyptian culture. He lives in the middle of it with all of its privileges, but there comes a turning point when Moses is a young man, a turning point that you need to take note of tonight. As a young man, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew man in the street. And Moses is so enraged that he kills the Egyptian for beating the Hebrew. And Moses has to run out of the country to save his own life. So Moses grows up in the culture of Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh, and yet in this moment when he commits murder of an Egyptian, he has to flee the country, leave the country, because he knew that he himself in killing an Egyptian would be killed. Now as we get to this point, let me drive down a big, big nail in this study that you must take note of, and it's a huge point for you to remember as we continue on in this study through God's Word. The people of Israel, the Israelites who are also later called the Jews, are God's chosen, favored people. And in our coming Bible study, you're going to notice a pattern in God's chosen people, Israel. You're going to see a pattern that recurs over and over again. God wants His people to love Him, to live for Him, to serve Him. And they want to do that, but they never can be consistent in their commitment to God. And what we'll see over and over in God's Word is that God will call His people Israel to love Him and serve Him. And over and over they will, but then they will fall into failure. They will fall away into sin. And then God will bring them back, and they are restored in His grace and in His blessing. And we see that happen through this period, through the period of the prophets, uh, on through the Old Testament. It's a major point of the thread that runs through the Bible of God's Word. Okay, now I want you to look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. In other words, God heard their cries. God heard their prayers. God felt their hurt. God felt their pain. God felt what they were feeling as they were slaves in Egypt, and the slavery was getting harder by the day. So God is going to set forth His plan of rescue. He is going to set forth a way to bring His people Israel out of the land of Egypt in answer to their call. And it's a little unusual 
It is amazing that God often works in ways that we would never conceive, that we could never think of, and yet the plan of God is always right and it is always ingenious. Okay, so the scene changes back now to Moses. Here we have the people in Egypt. They are crying out of pain because of their slavery. The Egyptian Pharaoh that had lived had now died. There was a new Pharaoh in charge of Egypt. And so we shift now back from the pain of Israel in Egypt to this little man who's living away from Egypt. His name is Moses. And as we see this story... Uh, we see this, this man, Moses, who grew up in Egypt in a royal home who is now out of Egypt, uh, and he'd, he'd come to a lowly job. He'd come to be a shepherd. In fact, he wasn't even keeping his own sheep. He was keeping his father-in-law's sheep. And he was under no pressure. He was under no stress. He was living a life of leisure, just taking care of the sheep in a lowly stance. They weren't even his but he was just being that shepherd day by day. Interestingly, he was 80 years old. So Moses was getting on up into the years. I guess you could say that he was thinking about his retirement when he was going to leave the sheepfold and and get him a lazy boy and do nothing but sit all day long in retirement. And God steps up. And here's where it really gets interesting. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Well, the Lord goes on to tell Moses that he has heard the cry of the Israelites who are under this awful bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God shares with Moses, I have a plan to bring my family, my chosen people, out of that bondage and out of that slavery and bring them out of the land of Egypt. And then God lowers the boom on old, nearly retired, 80-year-old Moses. Here's what God says to him. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. God says to Moses, Come now, therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here we have Moses out in the far country, taking care of the sheep, getting ready for his lazy boy. And all of a sudden, God says, I have chosen you, Moses, to this mighty task of getting my people out of Egypt and into freedom. What's Moses' first reaction? Sure, Lord, I take that job on gladly. Absolutely not. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I? 
that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. I love that phrase. Who am I? How am I going to accomplish this? I'm 80 years old. How can I do such a thing? Now, we don't have time tonight. But I want you, write down this scripture. I want you to read this entire passage of the struggle that Moses goes through as God is calling him. You know, it's, it's a very common thing that uh, many, many times God calls us into a great work and we will make up an excuse as to why we can't do it. Or we'll, we'll say, Lord, I'm just too busy. Lord, I'm too old. Lord, I'm not educated enough. Lord, I don't have the strength, whatever it might be. That's still a very common theme that all of us deal with. When God calls us to a great task, sometimes we think, how can I avoid undertaking that task? And that's exactly what Moses was doing here. Well, I want you tonight, take down the Scripture, Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, through Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. Read that passage about the interchange between God and Moses and everything that Moses says to say, I can't do this job, God. I I can't undertake this. I'm not sufficient to do it. So as you read this account of Moses' reluctance before God, you're going to see Moses' excuses. Who am I? In other words, he's saying, God, I'm a nobody. I don't have the authority. I don't have the privilege I don't have the, the, the strength to, to do what you're calling me to do. I can't do that. I can't bring your people out of Egypt. Who am I to do that? And then he says, if I were to go into Egypt and tell Israel that I'm bringing them out, I don't even know your name. How am I going to tell them God is telling me to bring you out when I don't even know your name? I do want to step aside to tell you this. God gives Moses his name. It's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God's name that he gives to Moses is, I am that I am. And there is eternal significance in that, in that I am that I am. There is no beginning. There is no end. God is the great I am. As you link that as the thread that runs through the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself so many times as the I am. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John alone as Jesus connects himself in the New Testament to the God who identifies himself to Moses in Exodus. The great I am. I am that I am. There is no beginning. There is no end. I am God. If you were to spell that name in Hebrew... For us to put it in English letters, it's J-H-W-H, four letters, J-H-W-H. You pronounce it Yahweh, J-H-W-H. That is called the Tetragrammaton, and that is the four letters that spell out the name of God. I step aside to give you that little lesson of the Bible. But that's one of the excuses Moses gives to, to God. I don't know your name, and God said, yes, you will, because here's my name. I am that I am. And then then Moses says, well, even if I give them your name, they're not going to believe me anyway. And then he says, you know, God, there are two million Israelites in Egypt, and I am not a public speaker. I, I can't speak well. I don't have the speech to do that. I'm slow of speech. In fact, in the study of the Hebrew language, it's very likely that what he says is, I'm a stutterer. I can't speak well. Every time I go to speak to people, I start to stutter. I am slow of speech. God, I can't make any type of pronouncement to a group of people. That's just not me. And finally, he says, God, 
please, send somebody else. Don't choose me. Leave me alone. Send somebody else. There are various translations. Look at a number of translations of Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, because in essence what Moses is saying is, God, just leave me alone. Send somebody else. I am not your man. I am too old. I don't have the speech. I don't have the call. Just leave me be. Find somebody else for the job. And that refusal angers God. It stirs up the anger of God that he is calling this man, and he gives him excuse after excuse, refusing the call. But finally, Moses does accept the commission to represent God to the people of Israel and to represent the Word of God to the very Pharaoh of Egypt. So as we progress through Moses approaching the great Pharaoh, Commanding, you remember the great statement of God that Moses repeats to Pharaoh's, let my people go. As we hear that statement over and over, of course, Pharaoh doesn't receive it well at all. Pharaoh's heart is hard against the will of God. In fact, his response to God's command that he hears through Moses is summed up in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Turn there with me, Exodus 5, verse 2. And this is basically the summation of what Pharaoh thinks of Moses, God. He says this, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. So in other words, what Pharaoh is saying here is, I don't know your little God. I don't know anything about your little God, and I'm not going to listen to his word to let this rank of slavery go out of Egypt. No, I'm not going to release these Israelite people because your little God says for me to do that. So as we think about Pharaoh's refusal to bow down to God, what happens? In order to change his heart, to change his attitude, God sends ten plagues upon Egypt to establish that he is God that he is the power of the universe, and that he does have the authority to release his people out of Egypt. Very quickly, let me go through the ten plagues. The story of the ten plagues, take down this reference, is Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, through Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. So a rather long section of five chapters, Exodus 7, 20, through Exodus 12, 29. Very briefly... The ten plagues are these. The plague of the Nile River that turns to blood. The plague of frogs. Now, frogs were everywhere. Had to push them off their dinner table, push them out of the bed to go to bed at night. Uh, And everywhere they were, and finally they died, and the smell of death of all those frogs took over Egypt. The third plague is the plague of lice. Fourth plague is the plague of flies that came in swarms and covered the land. The fifth plague is a plague on cattle. It is called the moraine in the Bible. Most likely it is linked somehow to anthrax, taking away the animal cattle population of Egypt, which of course was a major financial population of of Egypt. The sixth plague was the plague of boils upon people and animals of Egypt. Very 
very painful boils on the people and animals. The seventh plague was the plague of hail. And as that hail rained down out of the sky onto the crops of Egypt, it beat the crops completely down to the ground. It ruined their food supply in that plague of hail. But then the eighth plague came, which was the plague of locusts. And whatever the, the hail beat down to the ground that was struggling to survive, the, eight, the locusts ate. So the, the food crop, the vegetable crop of Egypt was completely ruined through the hail and through the locusts. And then came a plague of opaque darkness that covered the land, complete cave-like darkness. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 21 of Exodus, it says that this darkness was so dark you could feel it. It was so thick you could feel the darkness. And then the tenth plague, the last plague, was the plague of death upon Egypt's firstborn males, both of the human population as well as the animal population of Egypt. Now, after that tenth plague, we know that uh, Pharaoh's spirit breaks and he lets the Israelites leave Egypt. We find out that that is a temporary decision, but associated with this tenth plague is the death of the firstborn, and with this plague rises an institution that is practiced in that day of Egypt when Israel was being released from captivity in those moments through that tenth plague of the death angel passing through Egypt. An institution arose that night. And that institution continues in the nation of Israel and the Jewish population to this very day. It's called the Passover. And this institution absolutely ties as a thread that runs through the Bible. Just before the death angel, the tenth plague, as it passes through the, the land of Egypt to take lives, God commands his people to take a lamb that is without blemish, to kill it, and to paint its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. And during that night of death in Egypt, as the death angel passed through, taking the lives of the firstborn males of the human and animal population of the land of Egypt, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you in death and will spare you because you're marked with blood. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an absolutely important factor in the thread that runs through the Bible. Just as Egypt was marked by blood in the homes of the Israelites so that God would pass over them in death, it is the shed blood of the final Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that God passes over us in death, forgives our sin, and gives us eternal life. The thread of the blood of the, sh of, the, of the Lamb, the shed blood of the Lamb, begins in Exodus and runs all the way through uh, our day in this day. In early Scripture, we see the need for sacrifice uh, in, in all uh, sorts of situations. Uh, in the Old Testament, a sacrifice was made on behalf of the people as a substitution for them, for their forgiveness. So their sin was laid on an animal, and that animal's blood was shed. That animal was punished to death so that their sin would be forgiven, forgiven in the substitution of that animal. So from the beginning of Exodus, we see the sacrifice of the lamb, the Passover, the passing of death over those who were covered in the blood. And, of course, there's the thread of Jesus Christ. He is the final lamb.
He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the final sacrifice made on the cross, laying down His life, shedding His blood, that we might have life everlasting. Death and hell passes over each one who says, Lord Jesus, I believe you're the final Lamb. I believe you're the Lamb who laid down your life, the Son of God, shed your blood that I might be forgiven. And death passes over me because of your death. Eternal life comes to me because of your resurrection from the grave. So tonight, that's pretty much where we're going to stop our study. But there is one more point before I close. I think this is a very interesting prophecy. It is in Exodus chapter 12. In the first Passover, as God establishes the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, as you read through it in your Bible, one thing you will find is that you understand on that night that Israel is sacrificing the lamb so that they could be passed over by the death angel, there were thousands of lambs shedding their blood that night. Thousands of lambs in Many, many, many households dying that night, their blood painting the doorposts and the lentils of those homes. Thousands of lambs died on that first Passover night when the Israelites were in Egypt. But never once in Exodus is lamb used in the plural. Although thousands of lambs died that night, whenever God refers to the death of the lambs, it's always as a lamb dies tonight. It is absolutely the thread of the Bible. There is one lamb in reference in Exodus, and there's one lamb that dies for us, that the death angel passes over us. Sin and death and hell has no hold on the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one lamb who dies that we might be forgiven and that we might be saved and that we might truly experience the real Passover as the death angel passes over us that we might have life everlasting. Always singular, the one Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We end there tonight, but as I end, I want to tell you that the next lesson is going to continue in the book of Exodus, and we're going to see the the nation of Israel come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. It's a very important uh, point of history in God's people and in God's word as we see the thread of his love continuing through his word. God bless you for being with me tonight. I'm so glad. Thank you, Chad and Kenneth, for uh, getting us streaming tonight. Uh, and I'm just so thankful that we can study God's word. So as I close tonight, God bless you. Uh, I, I pray that you'll be listening on Sunday. Uh, I, I'm also praying that the days of these restrictions are going to be lifted very soon. We're going to be together. It's so sad to see these empty pews, uh, and I can't wait to see you back here. But thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for joining us on Sunday mornings. Uh, and uh, I've got uh, a devotion coming out on Friday for you. Uh, and I know that there are other Sunday school lessons coming out, words from the congregation. We want to remain active in ministry and active in making contact with our church. Uh, Let me also, if you're listening tonight because you have a media connection, let me tell you something that I'd like you to spread the word about before I close. Yvonne Falls has been so kind to, to undertake a very hard work in that every Sunday she produces a written transcript of my sermon and it is to be distributed to the people of our congregation and community who would want it, a written copy of the sermon who can access us by media. So if you know of someone who is a shut-in or someone who doesn't have a computer or some media connection, uh, and they have no way to be connected with Clifford Baptist Church, 
make sure that you let us know. We'll be glad to mail them uh, a copy of the sermon so they can keep up with the sermon series uh, as it's coming forth Sunday by Sunday. But God bless you. Yvonne, thank you for that ministry. Thank you, everyone, for the ways that you're continuing to take Jesus into the world, even though we're living in some very unusual days. Our ministry continues, and praise God, in these days, God is telling us how we are to grow, not just to expand our borders in these days of a pandemic, but even on days beyond that. So God bless you. God keep you, and I can't wait that we are going to be together soon. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this night that we have joined together in your house. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I, I, I pray, I, I feel so much like Moses so many times that I'm slow of speech, that uh, I might not get my thoughts put together in exactly the right way, Lord, but I pray that you will coordinate my speech and the speech of every preacher and Sunday school teacher and uh, everyone who leads a mission group and everyone who conveys the Word of God in the public, Lord. Con- we pray, Father, that you will coordinate our speech, that we are clear about the love and the salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ. It is the thread that ties the Bible together. So, Lord, I thank you for our study tonight. I pray your blessing on every one of these students as they've joined. I pray your blessing on this church and every church, Lord, that is striving to serve you and be faithful to you in these very unusual days, Lord. Help us as your people to take the word of Christ into the world where it is so desperately needed. Perhaps right now we're not in our sanctuary because you're reminding us that we need to take the sanctuary out into the world, that we're your people there, that we might lead others to you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for drawing us together. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And good night.